Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Ray, and welcome to the RayWentworth.com podcast. In this podcast, we'll keep you up to date with the latest app development tech talk. And here are your hosts, Drew and Janie. Thanks, Ray. Welcome to another episode of the Ray Wenderlich Podcast. I'm Drew Freeman. I'm here once again with Janie Clayton. And this show we have Louis De La Rosa, or De La Rosa. He has given me permission to use as much trill as possible. He is the Director of Engineering of Capital One. He's also the organizer of the iOS Dev Camp in D.C., which has somehow acquired the name Louis Kampf. And he knows his business here because he is a member of the Over 10,000 Point Club on Stack Overflow. Later on in the show, we're going to have Janie, who's going to teach us how she learned to stop worrying and love the RESTful APIs. She's going to take us on her trip of being having to learn, well, Firebase. So, Louis, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Yeah. Hi, Drew. Hi, Janie. Thanks for having me. Hello. So, Louis, uh, the, the little bird has told me, or at least the email I got, is we are going to be talking about open source Swift today. Is this correct? Yeah, definitely. So, where do you want to start? Uh, let's see. Uh, how about WWDC uh, when Swift first arrived? And everything changed when the Fire Nation attacked. <laughs> I think. <laughs> right. Yeah, that was... Janie, what, in one show you, you had commented about, you know, they introduced this and it was really, really important for five minutes until all of a sudden they said, now Swift. Oh, that was metal. Mm-hmm. The thing I wasted a year writing a book on, which comes out at the end of the week. Pick up your copies now. <laughs> Swift is finally getting to a point where it seems stable. And I know there's so much that that isn't baked yet, but by open source Swift, are you talking about projects using Swift or are you talking about the fact that Swift itself is open source? Yeah, I think the fact that uh, Swift is open source and then what came out of it. Well, first off, when when Apple announced Swift, you know, I'd been Objective-C developer for quite a while, since 2005, back when I wanted to write an app for the Mac and I realized okay, you have to write in this kind of strange language, Objective-C, but okay, I'll learn that. And I got really good at it. Mm-hmm. And then they just kind of shocked everybody when they said, there's this brand new language, it's called Swift. And I thought, okay, they said the same thing uh, back in the carbon days. They said, hey, there's this new thing called Coco. You might want to learn it. And some of us said, no, you know, we, we want to stick with our carbon. We're good. And then I think, I don't know, three years later, four years later, they said, okay, no more carbon for you. Let's all, let's do everything in Cocoa. Yeah, at WWDC, I always tell people, you know, and it used to be Bertrand Soleil, when he would come out and go, we really think you should start doing this for all your new software. It's Apple's way of saying, the other stuff, we're going to get rid of it. <laughs> mm-hmm. it's, it's like the soup Nazi, no carbon for you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. So then we, we started using um, Swift really uh, soon after that, right? We Well, first we tried to figure out, you know, at Capital One, hey, does this work with the Objective-C stuff we've already written? And so we had this uh, meetup talk where we said Swift and Objective-C BFFs, best friends forever, where we talked all about, um, you know, interop, and we started doing that. And then started just, you know, after that was all good, writing uh, everything in Swift. And so the majority of our credit base is uh, are in Swift now, uh, but then you know I, I like to think about okay what what next? Looking at open source Swift, I started looking at hey can we use our Swift skills on the server and then can we use it on other platforms like IoT? One of the things that was really nice is that the Swift introduction really felt like it had more been been more thought out for that interop. Mm-hmm. Now, admittedly, you know that Swift two to three conversion would get us all, <laughs> but it really was it really was something that felt like it was going to be a good class citizen with the other. Well, it's kind of interesting to me that how much 
heavy lifting Swift had to do in order to be able to get along with multiple different things. Because not only did it have to get along with C and Objective C, but also since they wanted to open source it and have it work with like Linux and work on the on the server, like they they had to design it to be able to play nicely with a lot of different types of things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think they they laid a lot of groundwork early on with LLVM, right, to make sure that that's. Uh, portable on a lot of different uh, systems. And then once they did that, then Swift kind of rode on top of that. So yeah, I think they were thinking ahead. Yeah. And, and I really, I, 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 as much as I often harp on that Swift 3 conversion, <laughs> it was really obvious that the Swift 3 conversion was to try to divorce Swift from being exclusively an Apple language, getting it more to a generic language that would live in other worlds. Yeah, down in the bowels of, of, of um, you know, Infinite Loop, they've got a bunch of people that are, you know, like hopped up on the spice that are looking into, into the future so they can design Swift for things that will be happening in, in 10 years. <laughs> I, I've always wanted to just be a fly on the wall to see an Apple roadmap. That that concept just, it, it, it amazes mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, it was kind of similar to me how I felt when uh, Apple announced, and I don't know if you remember, if y'all remember this, but when we were all PowerPC and they said, by the way, we've been secretly compiling all this stuff on x86 for, I don't know, however many years. And, 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 and the thing you're watching right now is actually on x86. And everybody's like, what? What is happening? Like, there's a parallel universe that just, you know, existed here. I, I'm ashamed. I was one of the few people who, who went x86 was like, really? Finally? It's about time. <laughs> I, I, x86 for me was, I, everybody else, I remember going crazy over this thing. It's like, oh, they're going to finally stop uh, abusing Intel and all of this. But, but it was just like, it seemed like a natural progression. Mm-hmm. So now I have not done as much of the server-side Swift. Matter of fact, I would say the amount of server-side Swift I, I have done could fit into all the tech I have given you today. For people who haven't touched the server-side Swift, how do you explain that? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, for me, it's basically uh, letting us Swift developers have all the fun that, you know, folks that are doing Java or Go or, or JavaScript, letting us write microservices in the language that, that we like to use. That, that, that That's how I kind of uh, put it. And we've been looking at it for, for a little while now and just kind of working through all the different things in terms of uh, deployment. You know, that's pretty important to us at Capital One. Just make sure we can uh, deploy things, make sure they're all monitored, make sure that, um, you know, we can fail over, you know, load balance, break the circuit if we need to. Now, what exactly are microservices? Like, I know that Susan Fowler wrote a book about it in her context of things that she did at Uber, but that's not something that I, I necessarily have any familiarity with. So, like, like, what is a microservice? Yeah, yeah. I think, uh, let's see. So, you know, in the old days, we would just kind of write everything as one big kind of application. It would have all the different endpoints in it. And microservices, we're just trying to kind of isolate each one of those and let them be kind of deployed on their own. And then it's easier to manage them, debug them, you know, get them up and running. Okay. So then you, you, you went and you wanted to do Swift on the server in order to be able to control your own microservices and do that in a language that you felt more f- comfortable with. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, you know, people talk about full stack development, you know, usually people talk about it with uh, like web and, you know, backend. But uh, I, I kind of think about it as being like a full stack Swift developer where, you know, you do mobile 
and the uh, the APIs that you also call, the microservices that you also call. And uh, actually, we were fortunate to have uh, Ray himself talk at a earlier behind-the-scenes open house that we held where I work. And he actually talked about Vapor, so it kind of inspired me to uh, investigate it more. We actually also have uh, an engineer on the Swift server working group. So we've been involved, you know, a lot with uh, server-side Swift. And then, you know, right now... It, there's uh, there's three big frameworks to choose from, right? There's Vapor, there's Perfect, and there's Katura. Uh, we looked at all three, and we liked uh, Vapor uh, the best. It has really good community support, but you know we also like the other two. I think the other two are really good. I think uh, Ray had some really good screencasts on Vapor and Perfect, but if he did one on Katura, I think a lot of people would like that too. I think the future is bright for server-side Swift programming. But, uh, you know, I think a lot of people still need to get into the mindset of, hey, uh, Swift is not just for iOS. It's for other platforms as well. And I think they've done a very good job of, 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 of getting it detached. Uh, speaking of, you know, the Swift being a cross-platform and not iOS thing, um, have you tried to do any cross-platform development using the package manager? And if you did, how easy was it to maintain? Let's see. So Swift package manager is your best friend when you're uh, writing open source Swift. So either on server side or on IoT, specifically Raspberry Pi, because... Uh, other than that, you just have Swift C. Um, actually, the, the REPL doesn't even work on Raspberry Pi currently. Uh, it's basically Swift on ARM. Doesn't The REPL doesn't work. But um, you can use Swift C, but you really want to use Swift Package Manager because it does a dependency management for you, and it, it just keeps your, your code kind of clean. It's kind of like your Xcode build or like your Xcode, but uh, non-graphical. Have you tried generating Xcode projects from the Package Manager, speaking of Xcode? Yeah, yeah. It does have a command to do that, but there's no Xcode on, uh, you know, for example, Ubuntu. Right. Yeah, I mean, if I could wave a magic wand or if I could ask Santa one thing for Christmas, <laughs> I would ask him for Xcode on Ubuntu. Uh, that's probably the, the biggest caveat uh, that about developing um, on a non-Mac platform. Yeah, it makes me sad to hear a bunch of people kind of talking smack about Xcode and talking about how terrible it is because, like, I, I found it to be one of the, the friendliest IDEs that I've ever worked with. Like, when I look into trying to do stuff with Python, I'm like, what am I supposed to do with this? And it's like, oh, use the thing from JetBrains. And I'm like, but it doesn't do autocomplete or do all these nice things that Xcode does for me. So, like, the, the whole not being able to use Xcode within, like, Ubuntu or on um, the Raspberry Pi or other stuff is just kind of like, uh <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's basically two options, I think, right, with editors. One is you could go super old school like me and just use VI. <laughs> Emacs. <laughs> and, and then let the compiler, uh, you know, do its thing, let your test do their thing. O or you could get fancy and then mount your uh, your directories via SSH or uh, transmit disk. I actually like transmit disk. Try to work with Xcode that way. Uh, the only thing, so that'll get you like code completion. The only thing is to remember that things do behave differently on Linux and and so there's some things that just, you know, aren't available on, on Mac when you try to compile things. Uh, so you have to use the pound if OS Linux or the new if can import. But, uh, you know, if, if you know that, you can try to use Xcode for development on Linux. Uh, have you used any, um, have you written any system modules to try to access the Linux libraries in Swift? Like, what was the process like if you did that? One of the really good libraries on on Linux, on Raspberry Pi, is this library called Swifty GPIO, right? And, and GPIO is uh, general purpose input-output. Uh, basically lets you write stuff uh, to a pin, uh, basically controlling hardware or read stuff in, so from sensors and, and so forth. And I looked at the code underneath there, and I was kind of fascinated because the way you control 
a GPIO is actually through this virtual file system. And you're basically writing things to files and then that changes things in the real world. And that just kind of, you know, it was just, it was just really interesting. Kind of just kind of blew my mind. I, I know you, you want to talk more about the, some of your Raspberry Pi work. And I'm looking forward to it mm-hmm. uh, because I'm, I'm starting an experiment with, uh, with Arduino and Core Bluetooth, um, which is, I guess, I'm not sure how to, re- to, to refer to the relationship between Raspberry Pi and Arduino. I don't know if they're like, mm. like Windows and Mac or <laughs> if they're like uh, far cousins. But electronics and hardware was never my area. It was always the software side. So that, that's an experience there. And I, I'm looking forward to it. When we talk again in a few weeks, uh, we'll compare notes and see how that went. Yeah. Sounds good. So we're, we're talking about all the back end and the server stuff that you're doing with Swift, but you also mentioned that you're also doing some stuff with Raspberry Pi and the IoT. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So, uh, you know, at Capital One, we like to look at new technologies. And uh, our first IoT offering is, uh, you know, Amazon's Echo. There's, you know, a lot of Echo Dots probably being sold this uh this holiday season, you know, they're pretty cheap now, but, um, you know, we, we try to meet the customer where they are, you know, if they want to come to the branch, come on down. We, we noticed people were using their phones a lot, carrying their phones around with them. So we tried to build the best app that we could. And then we noticed that people were starting to use these, you know, intelligent assistants, these echoes. And so we built a, a skill for that. And that was our first uh, offering. So now you can ask Alexa, hey, well, you can't, I guess you can't ask it what's in my wallet, but you can ask, hey, what, what's what's in my account? How much do I owe? You know, you can actually pay your bill too. Well, Alexa's supposed to ask you what's in your wallet. <laughs> <laughs> and for those of you playing the drinking game for this episode, we have the gentleman from Capital One and we have uttered what's in your wallet. It had to happen. <laughs> And, and you can now mark that off on your bingo card. <laughs> uh, so when you do like the Swift development for like, you know, the Raspberry Pi and the Linux stuff, do you do the development like on device or do you write your code in Xcode and then deploy it um, like afterward to the Raspberry Pi? I've tried it both ways. I think I like it best just secure shelling in to the Raspberry Pi and then working that way. I guess also it's good to, you know, be putting stuff in GitHub and then you can, if you're having trouble, you can always just clone it down to your Mac and debug it that way and then put it back. But eventually you're going to need to run stuff on the Pi because especially the, the, the real power of the Pi is when you interact with different uh, sensors or different components to to do stuff in the real world, which, you know, you can't really do with your phone as well. The Swifty GPIO, um, that works pretty well for controlling like the hardware and the sensors, right? Yeah, definitely. So, uh, by the way, I want to give a shout out to the maintainer of that, Umberto Raimoni. Hopefully I got his name right. Uh, he's done a lot of work on that and porting Swift to Raspberry Pi. And so there, there's some other folks too that I, I should probably link in the show notes, but uh, it, it's definitely a smaller community than some of our other communities in Swift, but they've, they've done great work there. So you mentioned that the, the Raspberry Pi community that uses Swift, like is a fairly like like small community. That means that like a lot of these, these tools and frameworks and stuff like that, like you don't have a lot of people maintaining them. So like how hard is it to keep everything up to date with, you know, we mentioned Swift having no stable ABI. So like having, you know, new versions coming out like all the time, like it must be really hard for these maintainers to keep up with everything. That, that is probably the biggest difficulty right now. The stable Swift on Raspberry Pi Swift 311. There is a Swift 4 ticket in the uh, the Jira for Swift, and I think there is something like 17 compiler errors oh, that no. <laughs> we need help working on. But uh, I think we'll get there. But again, with just a small number of committers, and you know we have day jobs, it's going to be a little bit slower. But uh, you know I think we'll get there. I think I just you know I think the first version of Swift on Raspberry Pi came out pretty soon uh, after Open Source Swift came out. I think in like the next month or two. So I, I think we're going to get there. But uh, 
you know, right now we're, you know, a little bit behind, but I think that's okay. Yeah, one of the things to, to also note is that Foundation, Dispatch, aka GCD, and uh, XETest are ported to Linux. Oh, sweet. But in varying states. So if you look at the Foundation GitHub, you can see the status of each one of those things. It's pretty well implemented, so you can do you know the basics uh, all the way up to doing networking, which is pretty important for stuff like server-side Swift, but you know for, for, for many, many programs. There is that available, and uh, you know it, it's good to, to just check that out. Overall, I, I've noticed Capital One participates in a lot of these projects. Uh, you want to talk about that? You know, we consider ourselves an open source first company. We use a lot of open source. We think it helps out the solutions that we build. Uh, we like to contribute back uh, when we can. And we also uh, sponsor open source projects. So two years ago, we sponsored CocoaPods, uh, which is pretty cool. We actually had Aloy Duran, I think it was like the year before, come and speak at iOS DevCamp DC. While he was here, he gave us tips on, you know, how to use it. And after that, we made a few changes in terms of how we use internal uh, CocoaPods. For example, we check in our pods directory uh, to make sure we can build or recreate any build at any time. But yeah, we, we sponsor CocoaPods and uh, we also sponsor Webpack. So for people that do web development, you know, we think it, you know, makes the community stronger as a whole. Um, I'm still a little bit ambiguous about like what, what the um, sponsorship means. So you mean like, like, like do you give, pe- like, do you contribute people's time? Do you contribute money? Like what does, what does sponsoring an open source project actually entail? It, uh, it's definitely on the financial side, you know? Uh, most sponsorship is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but yeah, basically we're we're you know trying to help fund the project. You know, it's it's kind of like crowdfunding, let's say, but uh, you know from a single source. You know, it's basically saying that that we like this thing so much, and we think it's important to the community that um, you know we're going to put some money behind it and help ensure that that it keeps chugging along. Uh, I think when we sponsored CocoaPods, they're at zero point thirty nine, and you know I like to think we helped contribute to them getting to one the next year. They probably still would have gotten there, but hopefully they got there a little bit faster. What does that mean exactly? So you give money to the project. Where does the money go? Like, does it go to paying the contributors? Does it go to paying for server space? Like, like what? What? When you say you give money to a project, like, what does that mean? I, I mean, I think it can be for. Um you know, whatever they, they need. But I think for most open source projects, it is pretty much uh, contributors' time, right? Okay. If you look at, at what we build, um, we don't really need that much in terms of space or, you know, we probably already have a laptop, but what we really need is, is time to you know, really think and do our work. Yeah, no, it's just, for, for me, like, like it, it just reminds me of the, the um, you know, the Susan J. Komen thing for breast cancer awareness, where it's like, okay, you're, you're spending a bunch of money, but for awareness, what does that mean? So, like, I, I totally think that all the people who contribute to open source should be paid for their time, and I think that that's awesome that companies are going in and, like, you know, recognizing that this is a really important thing to do, and I just wanted to make sure that, you know, when, you know, a, a large company like Capital One sponsors something like Cocoa Pods, that it's actually going to Mm-hmm. the people who are contributing all of the mental and intellectual labor that goes into creating all of these uh, projects that we use every day. Yep, yep. Yeah, actually, I think, um, you know, at the time, the lead uh, contributor was Sam, Sam Giddens. And I think he gave a talk at uh, NS Spain where he, you know, he basically says, you know, hey, you know, Capital will help pay for me to develop full time on CocoaPod. So, uh, yeah, that's that's pretty much where, where, where it went. And then uh, the good thing is when you sponsor something like that, then it not only benefits, you know, us, but it develops, it benefits like the whole community. And I think CocoaPods is probably the most widely used package manager, you know, in, in our world. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate that too, because people tend to, to not realize that in the open source world, 99 plus percent of these people, they're volunteering their time. But 
on the flip side of that is they're working on this project because it's a passion. And when you can get compensated for working on a project that you have that passion for, I think that just is really positive all around. Also, I feel, I feel a little bit like open source projects are kind of like puppies where, you know, they're really cute and they're really awesome and you, you really enjoy having them for a while. But then it's a long term commitment. So after a couple of years when the puppy stops being as cute and you've got a bunch of other obligations, <laughs> you get to a point where it's like, oh, boy, I don't I didn't know what I got myself into when I started this project. So it's, it's nice to know that there's like kind of a, a way of making sure that, you know, you're not on the hook for, you know, 10, 20 years maintaining a project that you started back when you didn't know what you're getting into. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think other people hopefully coming into the project, you know, making sure that that it's fresh. You know, I think the more as a community, we can support the projects, you know, wh- wh- whether it's time or money um, or, or contributions, um, the better. Louis, there, there's just so much that that we're seeing with Squiff now. It is amazing. And it's great to hear all the work that, that you guys are doing internally. And we look forward to seeing some of those as, as they come to fruition. And amazing the stuff that you guys are doing to help the community and help it grow. And I really want to thank you for uh, for talking to us about this. And I'm looking forward to talking to you in the next show about uh, how far I go with the electronics as well. Louis, thank you so much for joining us on oh, that. Great. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me. So moving on to the second half of the show tonight, Janie has uh, managed to have this wonderful topic tonight because this is something that you swore in the field you would never do, if I remember from what you told me, that, that this was like, I won't do this, and now you're going to talk about your adventures in, in having to finally go in a direction that you hadn't before. Yes, that is correct. So I started uh, doing programming, um, not, not, I mean, I was a relatively late person. So like I started programming about 2012, 2013. And my only platform and like experience that I really have with programming is mobile development on iOS. Like I learned Objective C, and then a year after I learned Objective C, Swift came out. So I'm primarily like a Swift iOS person. And I got really frustrated early in my career because most of the jobs that I got were working for companies where you had these these people who would only want you to do iOS stuff that was available on Android because they wanted to have the exact same experience on both iOS and Android. So basically, the entire application. <laughs> was they would set up a server somewhere that would have a whole bunch of junk in it, and you would pull that junk down, you'd shove it in a table view, and that was your app. And this frustrated me tremendously because there were all these really cool, neat things in the Cocoa Frameworks that I was not allowed to use because they did not exist in Android. It made me hate Android with a fiery, burning passion because they didn't have all the cool stuff that we had on iOS, and I felt I blamed them for my inability to find a job where people would pay me to do, like, core graphics and OpenGL and iBeacons and all the really cool, neat stuff in iOS. Oh, don't sh- don't sugarcoat it. How do you really feel? <laughs> <laughs> so so for me like that that kind of like I, I have mental impediments to things that I don't want to learn because I have negative connotations to them. Like I don't learn I don't want to learn um, algorithms because I mentally associate that with you know like going and working for companies that are run by twenty year olds who have millions of venture capital and have ping pong tables. So for me like even though I know <laughs> algorithms, you know, even though intellectually I know algorithms are a really good thing to know i just every time i try to learn them all i can see are these you know like hipster you know cold brew coffee people who are mining ethereum in giant 
in the like, co-working spaces in San Francisco, and I can't learn it, and it just makes me so angry. So, I, and I see five percent of our listeners right now going, "Oh." <laughs> so for me, like like for a number of years, I really very strongly railed against the idea of working on any kind of application that had to talk to a network backend because first off, like it was something that I felt was kind of like preventing us from going and doing cool stuff in iOS, but also I couldn't find a lot of documentation on it because a lot of people just kind of assumed that because this was such a prevalent thing, this is probably like 95% of iOS development, that everybody just knows this stuff. And I didn't know it because I can't, like, I only knew iOS. So, like, I would work for companies and they would be like, okay, you need to set up all these API backend, you know, endpoints. I'm like, I don't know what that means. They're like, oh, it's easy. You just, you just set up the endpoints. I'm like, What's an endpoint? I don't know what that is. They're like, oh, well, just just go play with Paw, and Paw will teach you about the endpoints. And I'm like, I open it up, I'm like, I, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with this. And they said, well, just just play with it. Just type something into it. So I'm like, okay, hello world. And it's not doing anything. I don't know what I'm supposed to do with this. So, like, I had a lot of frustration about even trying to figure out, like, what to even Google, because I'd look up, like, API, and it wouldn't really tell me what I was looking for. I didn't know that this was even networking until I'd been programming for, like, two years. And it just, it was horribly frustrating, and it didn't help that one of my projects that I had at the last real job I had two years ago was to spend a month trying to roll my own OAuth. (laughs) So, I just... Oh, you poor, you poor thing. Yes, yes. So, I just, for a really long time, like, I just said... I was never going to work on an application where I had to pull data off of a server and put it into a table view because I just, I'd had all these bad experiences with it. I just, I thought this was horrible and I just made the unilateral decision. I just wasn't going to do this. And I was told by one of my co-authors that that instantly made me unemployable in the field. So... Um, I started a couple, like about two months ago, and um, we're working in December on a couple of projects, like for ourselves, in order to because you know it's it's the end of the year and stuff is going on. And one of, one of the projects that I have that I'm responsible for is figuring out how to use Firebase to see if we can use Firebase as our networking backend and be able to like like interact and integrate with it. So like I thought this was an interesting project to give to me because I have absolutely no idea about how any of this crap works. Like, I have railed against it. I have a mental block on it. I decided a long time ago I didn't want to have anything to do with this. So, like, I was interested to see if this was something that even I would be able to figure out how to deal with. And so far, like, I've been incredibly happy with how Firebase has set up all doing all of the stuff that I hate doing because I don't understand it. So, um, before we go any further, for, for people who haven't touched it, can you just give me a quick description on what Firebase is? Well, I would say that Firebase is like Parse 2.0, but there are people out there who mm. may not know what that means. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Used to use a lot of Parse myself. So my understanding of what, what Firebase is, is that Firebase is a, it's a platform that you can use that was developed by Google to take care of a lot of back-end stuff for you so that you wouldn't have to set up your own server, you wouldn't have to know Rails, you wouldn't have to go in and know how to do all of that stuff. So if I'm like, you know, an independent iOS developer, I don't know anything about Rails, I can go in and I can set up my own server back-end and authentication and analytics and a bunch of other stuff without having to have my own server or understand how any of that stuff works or maintain it. Like, at a certain point, if you get a certain number of users, then um, you you pay for it, but, like, you can go in and and play around with it for free, and if you don't have a lot of users, my understanding is that you don't pay for it. Well, I mean, a lot of the services always seem to have sort of that developmental tier where it's enough for you to to get your your environment set up, and then once you're actually working on a commercial level where you've got a, a lot of transactions 
person's going through, then you're going to pay for that service. Yeah. But uh, so far, like I've been working on this for about um, about a week now, and I've been really impressed with the way that they decided to set this up. Because like, again, like a big thing that I hadn't understood when I first started trying to figure out networking stuff was like, I didn't understand, you know, API calls. I don't understand NSURL session. I don't know why anybody uses Alamo Fire. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, no. I, I'm sorry. No. I've lived Alamo yeah. Fire more than once. <laughs> so for like my understanding of this is that basically like all of these different things that you need to do or they're all very nicely wrapped in like swift calls so if you want to do like oauth like there's a couple of lines of swift code that you use where everything's all nicely abstracted away you don't have to see all of the, you know the scary weird stuff that happens in the background with oauth you just use a, use a nice couple of lines of swift code you set a couple of settings in your firebase console you set a couple of things on your project and it just works mm-hmm. And you mm-hmm. don't have to know about any of this stuff because it doesn't have anything to do with what you actually need to be know in order to do your application. You can just you can set up authorization. It just works. It's a couple of lines of code. It's maintained by Google, and you're done. So you're not even seeing things like REST calls through Firebase, or are you setting up? No, it um, it's a reference based. API. So like when you go in and you're creating your database, like you're creating like a root node and then you're creating child nodes for that. And then you can go and you can access it through these root nodes. So you don't, you're not seeing JSON, you're not seeing uh, REST calls. You're just, you're writing Swift code that talks to the server and like goes through this, this node graph to find whatever information it is that you need that you've set using Swift calls. And it sounds like also on the back end for the database, you're not dealing in the world of SQL type searches that it's it's a different kind of access to this. I mean, it might be that in underneath the hood, but everything is nicely abstracted away where you go in and you you interact with a nice, friendly IDE, right? Nice, friendly little dashboard, nice, friendly Swift. Every All of the, the scary stuff that is complicated, it's it's abstracted mm-hmm. away and you don't have to see it. And does it map uh, like model objects or, or structs for you? I think that you are responsible for doing that. So the, um, I went through and I was, I went through the um, intro to Firebase video series on Ray Wenderlich and it looked like when you want to create your models and so forth that you have to do that like in code. So like, again, this is a reference based thing. So you create, you create what your parent node is and then you create like the child nodes from that. Like, I don't, I don't know if there's a way of being able to take like an already pre-existing JSON like structure and being able to import it. There probably is, but I hadn't looked into it at that point yet. I just, I saw it was possible to create these models by creating like these node graphs without having to like, you know, parse JSON or look at JSON or know what JSON even looks like. You just have to know that, you know, like I have a, a family object and within the family object I have, you know, the, the, the parents and then I have the pugs and like that's that's all you need to know. Yeah, I mean, I used to use uh, a parse back in the day. Parse 1.0, I guess. And, uh, you know, at that point, I, I, I was, I guess, like the 95% or whatever you call it in terms of, <laughs> you know, having written Ruby on Rails, actually wrote uh, Ruby on Rails, and then later a Sinatra uh, backend for when push notifications first came out, you know, making sure that you can, like, register your devices and sending them out. And so I was initially resistant to using something like Parse, like a mobile backend as a service. But it was, it, like like Janie said, it, it's super easy to use, and you can get projects out, like, way faster. And so I worked, you know, at, at this consulting company uh, before Capital One, where we put out this uh, this app. The model objects were like super easy to create and you know save. You didn't have to do this. Okay, make the, make sure this API call gets called. Make sure on the back end it gets saved properly atomically. It did it all for you. And then not only that, but and I think this was before Lambdas. You could do these cloud functions and you could write basically like serverless stuff uh, super easily without having to worry about deploying it. So you have to look at this because I, I have this old project that I was working. 
working on, but it was this thing was the database schema from hell, and this was a few <laughs> years ago. So of course I'm I'm coding it in PHP to mm. to generate up the templates for the schema, mm -hmm. and you know I was looking into things like uh, like Symphony and Doctrine to generate uh, a REST API and talk to the database so that I could actually have this this backend application that would just serve what I needed in that way that Janie truly despises to have my, my full <laughs> REST API, but to, to be able to say, well, I could take this horrible schema, and by horrible, I don't mean that it's it's badly designed, at least I hope it's not, but it's, it's a complicated schema. It, mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. designed to cover a whole bunch of different areas. It's got like tons of foreign keys and stuff or something. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those yeah. things that a, a true, a, a, a true representation goes through about five or six links to get you everything you need. Mm. But it's just like, th this kind of answers like some of the, the, I don't want to say complaints because I don't want to come off as negative. Um, it was just like, I've noticed that just a lot of what we do is very repetitive. Like it's, it's the same thing over and over again. You're pulling data off of server and you're putting it into a user interface. And I feel like we make it more complicated than it has to be. Like people don't want to use a thing like like you know firebase because they they look at parse and go oh google's going to shut it down they're never going to let us do this stuff and i'm like no the the data that they're mining is too valuable for that <laughs> and it's just like <laughs> It's just like I, I, I see like people they keep, they keep reinventing the wheel over and over again and they make it more and more complicated. So you get like applications that do like one thing, but they're like ten thousand classes, and it's like why did you create all these classes? This is this is a thing, and I just I feel like there should be almost like a WordPress template for this type of thing because it's the most common thing that we do, and it's like it like it shouldn't be that hard to kind of you know like automate all of these these processes. So seeing that they were able to like go in wrap everything in these nice like Swift calls where it was really easy easy to just go in, get all the stuff done, get your thing out and focus, you know, get on with your life and do all of the things that you want to be doing. This was really like cool for me because like, I don't want to have to go and learn RESTful APIs and figure out how to set up a server in Ruby and figure out how to do all of my endpoints and set up NSURL session and figure out like all of that other stuff. I just want to be able to go in and go like, dude, I just want to pull, I just wanted to do this thing and I can do that in a day. And that is awesome. Yeah, and I I, I, yeah. I agree with you 100%. I think where we, we tend to stumble with this is that this is a fantastic tool from the engineering point of view. But when we're dealing with this on the company level, and I'm assuming, Louis, since you work for a slightly <laughs> larger company, not, <laughs> a not, too bit big, not too big, that you get the business logic and the business data coming from the business folks who they don't really think through what would be the best way to manage this so that the engineers mm -hmm. can mm -hmm. create that end product easily. So they're busy working on maybe their web version of this and they're building that out to get their data there and then you're trying to have to now backtrack and glue into that and it takes somebody who is oh I don't know say a director of engineering or a good <laughs> CTO to say now wait a minute let's step back because we can manage the back-end business logic and the actual data and we can have this tool that will let us make it easy on the end developers to be a client of this data. Right, right. And make it easy to access it whether you're on iOS or Android or, or a web. web interface, yeah. You know? Yep, yep. Or maybe like, you know, Raspberry Pi or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Or Alexa. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, the, the only thing um, with Firebase is just, you know, where your data lives. I think that that's that's the only caveat. And, you know, I think once you get going, you know, this is something to just consider. And so that, that that's one of the things. So w we do, you know, I, I think we're, we're one of the companies that 
uh, went over to AWS, you know, pretty early. And so our, our, our stuff lives in the cloud, but it's, you know, kind of like in our section of the cloud, I guess you could say. I look at my son and I said, there is no cloud. There's just somebody else's computer. <laughs> exactly. Right, right. Or, so, or a network series of smart refrigerators. <laughs> <laughs> With hopefully some some good some good drinks for us, <laughs> yeah, but I think you know that's something just to, just to consider is just you know making sure that all your data is secure, right? Because that's you know I think the most valuable thing in this world now is just like you know our, is our data. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I like I understand why why that is something that would concern you because you work for a fairly large company where your data is useful. But for me, as like an independent person who's doing weekend projects or whatever, that's like the the, the worry about how I'm going to like which yacht I'm going to spend with the million that I get from my, my, my thing. Like, <laughs> I, me, like, at this point, I just need to get something up and running to see if, like, even my proof of concept is, is going to work. And so, like, right. you know, worrying yeah, about, no, like, what you're going to do with something that's going to happen, like, five years from now, like, that's not that's mm-hmm. not a concern right now. So, like, for me, like, you know, if, mm-hmm. if this wound up being, like, a big thing and whatever, then I would have to consider mm-hmm. that. But, like, being able to just kind of, like, prototype, like you do with the, the Arduinos and the Raspberry Pis and be able to do something by myself in my basement over a weekend as a proof of concept just to see if this is something that would even work is just like awesome and again like I said like everything's wrapped like it, all of the, the the language stuff has been wrapped nicely in Swift so it was done kind of logically and it wasn't over engineered which was really like appreciate, appreciated by me because like I'm looking at this going okay this makes sense to me I understand this this doesn't have weird like you know slashes and dots and other things that I don't understand mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'd like to see the scalability from going from your prototype and your proof of concept on, on um, Firebase to when you start scaling up. And, and you did mention uh, the, the security issue there. And uh, obviously, between the two of you, there's a huge difference between, say, my pugs, my families, and say, oh, 100,000 car loans. You know, that that, that kind of data, you, you do need to hope that nobody ever gets in there. And mm-hmm. being one of those 10,000 loans that I know that is sitting over at Capital One, I, I security is important to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What's in your wallet? I think the count is now four. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I... I, I like it being able to put it there and, I, and I've looked into AWS and that is fantastic for when you're definitely scaling into much bigger data mm-hmm. so you, you've uh, so you've been able to uh, to prototype your databases in forms of nodes with Firebase and they they wrap the access of that you were talking about dashboards uh, can you can you talk about the, the Firebase dashboard really briefly because you know for people who haven't touched it at all the cloud-based dashboard takes over a lot of things that you'd have to do like for um, authentication and permissions and so forth. So, like, one of the functionalities that uh, CloudBase has is the ability to do, like, real-time messaging. So you could create, like, you know, real li- real-time chat clients in iOS. So, like, one of the things you need to be able to do is, like, you know, do push notifications. But, like, Apple has their own proprietary way of doing push notifications. So you have to go and, like, get your um, permission uh, certificate from the Apple developer portal and put in your, your, your keys and your other stuff inside of the Firebase console. So, like, that's not something that you need to do in your code. You just go in, copy and paste a bunch of stuff in this this console that exists on the web, and you set it once, and you never have to think about it again. I know because notification setting up Apple notifications itself is is grueling. Yes, so that is yet another thing that is wrapped in a way that makes it easier for you to deal with and not have to worry about. And now you had mentioned that there is a Ray Wenderlich tutorial on getting started with Firebase, correct? Yes, uh, Brian Moakley did an introduction to Firebase. It's in the video tutorial, I believe. 
believe if you are not a subscriber to RayWenderlich.com, you can go in and watch the first video for free to get a taste to see if this is something that is right for you. But they had like an entire section on how to do user authentication. So even if you're not interested in any of the other stuff that Firebase has for you, being able to to set up authentication is is worth the cost of watching the tutorials. <laughs> and a shameless plug for our, for our Ray Wenderlich podcast listeners, if you haven't subscribed to the videos, in knowledge and content pays itself off. I mean, I'm I'm using Brian Moakley's introduction to Swift for my for my uh, 11 year old son. They're really easy to follow, and and I, I'll admit, as soon as I I get done recording and, and my week quiets down, I wanna I wanna take a look at his Firebase one because I, I like uh, he, he's uh, really easy to swallow for material. Louis, I really want to thank you for your time and your insight into, into uh, Swift, not just as we see it as iOS engineers, but all the other applications that people are using for it now. Uh, again, thank you for that. Yeah, it's, it's been a pleasure. Hopefully I've um, inspired some people to try out Swift on these other platforms, and I think that just makes the community better overall. And we'll have you back a little later in the season to to talk about some more things, and, and we'll also see how uh, how that went when I when I throw in about our, my, my life with Arduino. Janie, thank you for, for everything today. Again, we've got uh, Mark Delrymple coming in in a future show. We're going to have some of our other guests coming back. But in the meantime, that's going to wrap up this episode of the Ray Wenderlich podcast. We thank you all for listening. As always, most of this information, contacting Louie and contacting Janie and myself and some of the stuff we talked about will be in the show notes. Thanks again for listening. In the meantime, we head back to the Emerald Castle. Ray, we throw it back to you. And that's a wrap. Thanks again, everybody, for listening to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget to leave a rating on iTunes. See you next time.